0: Welcome to the Family Beacon podcast from Minnesota Family Council with hosts Grace Evans and Moses Brattrude. Stay informed on the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. Get the facts, stand for truth.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Family Beacon podcast from Minnesota Family Council. I'm Moses Brattrude. I'm here as always with Grace Evans. We're so excited that you guys are listening or watching with us today. Today we have a couple stories to help you get the facts to stand for truth. First of all, we'll be talking about a pro-life Christian influencer who – Well, there's some people who would really disagree with the fact that she's pro-life, which maybe is not surprising, but they're going on her Instagram comments and uh, saying some really interesting things that are, I, I think, really revealing about where they actually stand. So Grace will talk about that in a moment. Then we're going to be talking about how three years later, the state of Minnesota is finally um, realizing that it messed up its COVID predictions and uh, the fallout from that, which includes, you guessed it, more spending of taxpayer dollars. Finally, we'll be talking about the Republican debate, which, as we film, was last night. Some takeaways there, specifically on the issues that we care about, which is life, family, and religious freedom. So that's what we have coming up here on The Family Beacon today. And I'm going to kick it over to Grace uh, to tell us about this Christian influencer who made a splash when maybe she wasn't intending to.
0: So yeah, let's go ahead and start off with just some background on live action since the story has to do with live action. So most of you are probably familiar with this pro-life organization founded by Lila Rose and it is our nations and worlds, a leading pro-life organization and really just leads in pro-life messaging, pro-life social media content, and a lot more. But they're an awesome organization and every year, uh, for the past, I think, three or four years, they've had their Life Awards Gala at a Ritz-Carlton in uh, California. And so th- at this event, they give about th- uh, three to four awards to key pro-life figures From the year, and they're not only national heroes, but also heroes across the entire world that they bring in, and they just recognize for their amazing service to the pro life cause. And uh, it's also a big fundraising event for them since they're able to share a lot about what they do um, and recognize other allies. And so it's a great event to fight for the unborn. Now, that's just background to this. So a Christian influencer went to this gala and I'm assuming partnered with Live Action, although I'm not sure of that. And her name is Sarah Therese. And you can find her on YouTube. You can find her on Instagram. And she's had, I think, her social media presence for at least 10 years now. And so she's a mom, a mom of five and um, super solid Christian. And anyway, so she went to this pro-life gala in California. This doesn't sound like a headline story, right? Okay, she goes pro-life um or pro-life christians that are also influencers go to this gala a lot um so she went well i shouldn't say a lot but a few have gone in the past so she went to this gala and she posts on her social media some behind the scenes stories um and then she does another post on her main feed and she just thanks live action for their work of saving women and children from abortion and it's a really short caption you guys so it's just thanking them for their life-saving work that's it And if you guys could just see the comments, the comments on this post, the reason I want to talk about this is I want to talk about a few of the comments on there and just show you really that the opposition has no ground to stand on because, I mean, guys, the more the the opposition has to not talk about abortion to get any points at all. I mean, they're not even talking about what abortion is. They're just totally rabbit trailing and deflecting from what's at hand. So let me read you some of these comments. These people are riled up about Sarah attending a pro-life gala and thanking live action for saving babies. So one person said, unfortunately unfollowing, love your videos and messaging, but true followers of Jesus don't judge or cast shame on people in unfortunate situations. I wish more Christians would understand how harmful this messaging is. Now, I just, okay, this person's calling this person is supposedly a Christian, claims to be a Christian, and is saying that it's harmful that she's talking about pr- the pro-life movement. Is talking about saving women and children from abortion. Um, she's, t- she's speaking up. Sarah is speaking up for the marginalized, the oppressed. Most influencers do not do this. Most Christian influencers don't even do this. But she's speaking up for the marginalized, as Jesus calls us to be. And this person... Uh, that commented this is shocked when um, her platform, which is very obviously and blatantly centered around Christ, when this platform that she shares that is Christ-centered doesn't look like the world's, this person is shocked. They're like, oh, how dare you? A follower of Jesus cast shame on people. They're just totally messing with things and totally using the wrong wording and um, they don't understand this commenter does not understand that being pro-life goes hand in hand with being a Christian, that, uh, being pro-life is not shaming women. It is not shaming children. In fact, it's actually standing with them. Um, the pro-life movement is very clear about if you've had an abortion, that there is no shame in Jesus, that, um, you have complete reconciliation in Christ, which is so beautiful. And, um, you know, there's a big weight that comes from undergoing an abortion, but in Christ you are free. And so Sarah is not shaming anyone here. And it is of course, uh, a Christ-like thing to stand up for the oppressed. One other comment reads, uh, only someone who is super privileged in a super privileged position could pressure women into having to have babies. Saying this as a mother who is now even more pro-choice after I gave birth, babies deserve love, a safe home, and they deserve to be wanted. Knowing that babies are born unwanted and unloved breaks my heart. Now, a few things to know about this are, okay, that's very sad that she's a mom who delivered a child, at least one, and now is very pro, even more pro-choice than she was before. That's heartbreaking uh, because she should understand the humanity of her child and that that child is worthy of life even more after she gives birth. Um, she should recognize that reality from the moment of conception, especially since she's a mother. Uh, In one of Sarah's old videos, like four years ago, she did a video on pro-life and she said, quote, my question to you is why is life precious, but only when it is wanted and when and since when did little mean worthless? And I think that's a great response to this woman who who is just saying, you know, all of these things. Very true. Babies deserve love. They deserve that safe home. They deserve to be uh, wanted and loved by their parents. However... Your level of wantedness does not determine your value, especially by your parents. If your parents don't want you, that does not determine that you are valuable or not. Um, And babies not only deserve love and the safe home, but they also deserve to be born in the first place. And they can't have those things if they are not given the chance to be born. One more comment I want to read to you, and then I'll be done with the comment section. Uh, But one user wrote, I think there has to be an understanding that abortion is a personal choice for the woman who's already here and alive. Not everyone's been as privileged as you to be able to have kids with no concerns. I live in a country where we have many children living in the foster care system, which is where unwanted kids end up being abused and trafficked. Maybe stop trying to control other women's reproductive systems and aid beneficial work. Adopt an unwanted baby. Volunteer for a charity helping disadvantaged mothers. Sponsor someone's rape counseling. You know, do something other than trash women's personal choices. Now, this comment really gets to the crux of what I see most people that are pro-abortion arguing from, and their argument is basically abortion is a personal preference. So get off your high horse, you pro-lifers, because a woman can choose if she wants to, and if you don't want to have an abortion and you're against abortion, then don't have one. That's the main argument I'm hearing throughout our culture. Uh, But... Really, abortion isn't a personal preference. We know that. We are all for women's empowerment. We are all for women's choices when that choice does not end a human life, when that choice does not hurt another human. So women are choose to chop their hair like I did, which Moses did not notice in this podcast, but that's okay. Um, they're, they're free to do that. They're free to dye their hair. They're free to choose what car they want to drive. They're free to do so many things with their body, but they're not free to hurt someone else with their own body. And uh, another thing this comment does, this person uses suffering to justify murder. This person is using potential suffering to justify the murder of innocent children. Um, Yes, some children in the foster care system are going to suffer. Some children that are born to this world are abused. Some children that are born to this world are born into poverty. Does that justify killing them? Of course not. So use the trot out the toddler argument that we've talked about before. Put a toddler in this circumstance. If a toddler was being abused, if this toddler was in poverty, if this toddler was being trafficked, does it, is it just to murder that child so that child doesn't suffer? Of course not. We need to work to alleviate the suffering, not the sufferer. So I will wrap this story up, you guys. Um, but the main reason I wanted to talk about this was just to show the really sinking ground that pro abortion uh, advocates stand on. They're not informed, they're not even talking about abortion. They're manipulating the situation and saying, oh, well, if you're pro-life, you're pro-birth and you are, you know, for children suffering, you're not fostering, you're not doing all of these things, you're only pro-birth. They're not actually talking about abortion. Um, And I'm proud of Sarah Therese because she is leading the way for Christian influencers to boldly speak up about the greatest injustice of our time. And something I've thought about a lot is that if Christian influencers who have a huge platform... Uh, really just spoke up about what their personal convictions are, are on this life and death issue. We would see so many hearts and minds changed. Yeah, they would get a lot of flack like Sarah has gotten. I think like over half of the comments were just about people unfollowing her. And um, she will lose followers. You will lose followers. But think of so many hearts and minds that will be changed. Think of so many people where a seed of truth will be implanted in their mind because people look up to influencers, right? And so if they see you speaking boldly about something that's so important like this, that can plant a seed down and that seed can grow down the road. So wanted to share that story with you because really a media outlet hasn't picked it up. And I thought that was just important for you guys to share with you guys. Moses, um, do you have thoughts on this? Otherwise, we can turn to our next story.
1: Yeah, Grace, I'm really grateful that you are bringing this up. So as you said, as far as we know, there's, you know, this is a pretty, you know, uh, someone with a with a lot of cloud, a lot of followers, and yet no one is talking about this story. And And you brought this to our attention and I'm really grateful for that. And I think our viewers will be as well. Uh, so I wanted to talk as well about um, something a little bit closer to home, uh, but also a couple of years ago. Um, cast your mind back to March twenty twenty. We were all sitting on our couches and we were unable to do a lot of the things uh, that we, you know, wanted to do because of uh, COVID nineteen. And there was a lot of there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of conflicting information and people didn't know what to do or who to trust. So uh, the state of Minnesota, you know, uh, like, in, like in most, like a, with a natural disaster or other crises, the state government steps in. And uh, there's an article this week um, that really uh, shed some light on the way they stepped in and whether that was ultimately a good thing or not. And so this is a uh, shout out to the Center for the American Experiment. Um, John Phelan uh, is the writer of this article. Uh, and I'll, I'll read a little bit from it briefly. So uh, when, uh, when the state debuted a model that calculated how many, uh, how many Minnesotans would die from COVID-19, and I, I, I remember when this model was released, um, uh, the initial model in, on March 25th of 2020 forecast that without mitigation, COVID-19 would kill upwards of 74,000 Minnesotans and that the state's 235 intensive care beds would be full within six weeks. And that was the basis, at least in part, on which Governor Tim Walz based his decision to, uh, to um, uh, issue the initial stay-at-home order. And if we remember, uh, ca- if you cast your mind back, um, what were still open were places like, quote-unquote, essential services. Healthcare, obviously, grocery stores, pharmacies, um and uh, also abortion clinics for some mysterious reason what was closed you know uh churches churches were closed as well as other things like restaurants and bowling alleys that certainly are not essential but churches are essential and churches were closed and we have not forgotten about that right uh, as minnesotans we have mm-hmm. not forgotten where the state's priorities lay mm-hmm. so getting back to this story uh the 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 algorithm, right, that that was used to calculate how many Minnesotans were going to die, was updated in early April, and that forecast that even with the stay-at-home order and other measures that Governor Walz's administration had put in place, uh, twenty-two thousand people would die uh, between uh, April of 2020 and October of 2021. Um, later, uh, that. Uh, And then uh, version three uh, later in May said that 22,000 Minnesotas would die over the course of the pandemic. Uh, Then later uh, in October of 2020, um, it was said that there would be a new version of the model to come out. And we haven't heard anything about it since then. So almost three years since the state has updated its (laughs) (laughs) COVID-19 model. Yeah, pretty, pretty shambolic. And uh, so let's, let's talk about the stats. We, we heard 74,000 were gonna die, then we heard 22,000 were gonna mm-hmm. die. What's the real number? The real number is over three years, uh, about 4,400 people uh, have died of COVID-19 in Minnesota, according to the Centers for Disease Control. And now, uh, if we assume that that figure is accurate, it perhaps is lower, we don't know, uh, or at least I don't, um, then as you can see, Grace, that is a tiny fraction of uh, that's one fifth of the uh, one fifth of the lowest number that the state forecast. Wow. And now here here to me, Grace, is the real punchline. And, the, and, and as uh, John Phelan reports, the Star Tribune uh, writes, Minnesota is using a 17 million dollar federal grant to learn the, from the pitfalls of COVID-19 forecasting in the last few years and improve its predictions for the next outbreak etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Better estimates could also prevent the damage that occurred during the COVID pandemic when wayward predictions undermined public confidence in the government's quarantine orders and restrictions. And uh, a University of Minnesota health professor was quoted as saying, think about the public cost of be- being wrong. And I think that's a very good thing for us to think about. Mm. And uh, as we look back on the COVID era, and all the mistakes that were made, It's been a reminder, I think, of of the power that the government has, especially in these crisis situations, and how they've misused that power and the ongoing effects of that. So, you know, I remember early in twenty twenty, I was looking at these exact numbers. Perhaps you guys were too, and I would I would be having arguments with my friends over text message, of course, because you know we went like for at least two months without seeing anyone um, that I recall. And, uh, and we would have text conversations about these things. And I was more in favor of those restrictions than some of my friends were. Why? Because I was trusting the government. I was trusting that those numbers were somewhat accurate and that I could save lives by staying at home, reducing the spread, stop slowing the spread, right, and, and, and ceasing to infect people. But, you know, that there's a different calculus that's in play when you think that the disease is going to cause 74,000 deaths in um in one year uh, versus a disease that's going to cause 4,400 deaths over three years, right? Like what we found out is that COVID was actually much less deadly than we thought. And as, as far as I'm aware, the vaccines played some role
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: in lowering that Uh, death toll, even if the vaccines then later became less effective. So I think, you know, you, you read articles like this and you really start to understand why conservatives and right wing people have become so suspicious of the government. And of course, this didn't start in 2020 by no means. Conservatives have always been suspicious of big government and of government overreach, government abuse of power. And that's that's true whether it's the CIA doing some crazy stuff in foreign countries conservatives are often the ones raising the alarm about that or whether it's um, the government health departments at in, in various places around the state and in Washington around the country and in Washington DC saying these saying these things that ultimately turned out to be kind of made up and changing our lives and and, and telling us what we could and couldn't do based on essentially arbitrary, computer models i mean it's it's just crazy and so we can you know look back on that grace and i think we can see that that was a mistake for the government to do that and i think Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but i don't want to i don't want us to just be mad about it you know and just to rail incoherently against the government i want us to be smart and think about the next pandemic and think about what is the government going to try to do next time and how are we going to be ready for that because as everyone here realizes that there's been a lack of, there, there has been an eroding of trust in the government. And they need to do a lot to bring that trust back for not just people on people who are conservatives, but plenty of people. Many people, a majority of people are now probably very suspicious of what the government says about pandemics. And that could not be a good thing if we come to, God forbid, um, another serious pandemic. So I'll end it there, Grace. I think that, we just need to remember those cautionary lessons. Let's not forget what was said to us during COVID-19 and what turned out to be false.
0: Yeah, so most, that's my take on that. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down. I think that a lot of us uh, perhaps unwittingly gave up a lot of the freedoms during uh, a lot of our freedom during COVID and that we shouldn't have done it um and with hindsight we would not do that again. So, thank you for that reminder. Let's now turn to the Republican debate that happened last night as we were filming it happened uh, September 27th and um, you know Donald Trump did not make an appearance yet again because as he says he's the forerunner of the race. So why would he he's he's so far above all the other candidates he doesn't feel like he needs to be needs to be there. That's what he keeps saying. So let's talk about, or Moses, I'll let you kind of transition us into this, but I really want to talk about the debate last night. And um, why don't you kind of bridge the gap between why we're talking about this uh, in relation to last week's episode where we talked about former President Trump's position on abortion.
1: Right. So last week we talked about Donald Trump's position Mm -hmm. and- As you say, uh, he has stated he's the front runner of the race and that's why he's not coming to these debates. And that's also why we spent so much time on his positions in that episode last week. But, you know, anything could happen between now and the time that the Republican nomination is decided. Any of the candidates on the stage last night, as unlikely as it may seem right now, may end up on our November ballot next year and have the possibility of being the next president. So it is important to hear what they have to say about the most important issues that we care about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you and I, Grace, were both struck by the fact that even in comparison with the first debate there was very little there was very little to go on this will not necessarily be a long segment guys uh there was one question about gender if i if i am i'm correct and there was one question about abortion and not even all the candidates answered either of those questions yeah so we'll we'll tell you what there was but what there was, was wasn't was not much and i think that's an indictment of the moderators and this was Uh, This is at the Fox, uh, this is Fox, Fox Business, possibly, or Fox News. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And uh, co-sponsored by Univision, a Spanish language channel. And so whoever made that decision to not ask questions about uh, more social issues, I I think that was a mistake. You know, Republican voters care about these issues. It's Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be news to people. Um, The first thing that I noticed, and I'll, I'll give credit where it's due, Um, Vivek Ramaswamy was asked a direct question about parental rights Mm -hmm. Um, and he he, uh, the the moderator made a good point about how many kids live in schools uh, live in school districts or attend schools where they are potentially able to change their gender identity without their parents being notified we've talked about this many times in the podcast before and vivek he's asked if he's you know supports parental rights and he goes even further and i i i really appreciate this this is a sort of answer i like to see where he he goes further and says let's be clear transgender surgery for minors is mutilation mm-hmm. and he talks he talks specifically about meeting chloe cole and other detransitioners and how they they regret and will regret for the rest of their lives the decisions that they made such as having a double mastectomy as a minor Mm-hmm. it was it was crazy and he also made a point that i really thought was good and that i haven't heard much so um he says you know we're told that when a child is um transgender they're at a higher risk of suicide mm-hmm. and that is the information he he points out that's being kept from parents something that could potentially be a literal and um credible and real and, and extremely urgent threat to their mental health and their physical well-being if if they could become a suicide risk. And this is the information that the school district is keeping from parents. It's not because the parents are these evil bigots, but because that's the student simply asks the school district to keep that information from the parents, right? So that is, it's simply absolutely insane. I'm glad to say that I think I heard any of the other candidates who were asked about that, they did uh, they did agree that uh on a on a ban on gender surgery or at least on stronger protections for parental rights. So I'd like to see that. Grace, what did you think about that uh segment?
0: Yeah, you have some really good thoughts there. And I I I liked what Vive said there. I'm not gonna add any more onto that, but I do wanna add more just on the comments about, you know, Parental rights, transitioning for minors, gender ideology. Something I noticed is that, um, you know, uh, candidate Burgum, he barely met, first of all, he barely met requirements for the second debate at 3% support, Um, I think you have to have 3% support to participate in these debates, but when he was asked uh, about a federal law to protect children that are attending public schools from being indoctrinated by this kind of ideology that teaches you that you can do these things, that a man can become a woman, um, he said that states should address the issue and it should not be something that the federal government deals with. So by that, he is saying that he isn't in support of a federal ban. So I was disappointed that he was pretty weak on that. Um, And then he just kind of deflected and changed the topic and went on to talk about jobs and making new jobs in North Dakota. So uh, that was pretty weak from him. And I think when it comes to this issue of gender ideology being pushed from and then to also mutilation of children, which Vive was pretty strong on, um, we really just have to keep in mind that this is irreversible damage. Right. I saw a post earlier and I have it pulled up in front of me. It was a post on Instagram. And it was kind of showing the irony of this um, because parents don't let children do so many things, but somehow we're supposed to accept that parents can let their children completely mutilate their bodies, have them mutilated, or even not know that this is happening to their kids. Uh, the post it has a picture of a like five-year-old who has tattoos all up his arms, and the post reads. I'll have it on the screen here. It says, let's kids choose when they're ready for a tattoo. Hashtag protect minor body mods. Hashtag no discrimination. And then the next slide says it's like a satire tweet, right? It says some kids know they want a tattoo as young as two to three years old. Early signs include using drawing markers to draw on their arms, repeatedly reaching for a pen placed in front of them and making the sounds ta and or to Be an inclusive adult. Tell them about people with tattoos. Show them pictures of all the pretty tattoos and ask them, do you want a tattoo? You will see. Kids just know. And while it makes you laugh, it also is very saddening because this is exactly what we are being told by progressives. We are told kids just know that they want to change their gender. So you need to make sure you give them options to do these things and look for these signs. And in reality, you're push If you're doing that, you're pushing a child to think something wrong about the way that God made their body, and you're pushing them towards irreversible damage, and innocent blood will be on your hands. So I thought that was uh, a really witty post, Moses, so I will send that to you, and I'm going to have that, like I said, on the screen while I was talking so people can see. Um, Moses, I think that's really all on gender that we picked out from the debate. Really not a lot of comments there. They also did, of course, discuss abortion, but not very much. Um, It really was only DeSantis and Chris Christie who commented on abortion. So, Moses, why don't you go ahead and give your thoughts on what DeSantis said, and then I'll give my thoughts.
1: Yeah, so I thought this was actually a decent question from the Mm -hmm. moderator, which was um, uh, you have to win Arizona. Any Republican has to win Arizona to win uh, next year. Uh, there's a lot of pro-choice voters who are swing voters in Arizona that are making it a swing site, among other types of voters. And how will you target pro-choice voters in Arizona? Well, that's pretty good. Um, that's a good question. Every candidate needs to be thinking about that. Now, DeSantis, uh, he, he doesn't answer the question immediately. He pivots to target Trump for not being there and also for the comments that we discussed last week that I won't get into again, where Trump is kind of... Um, uh, thinking that he'll just solve the abortion issue and uh, that it'll be just done with. Um, and so uh, and then he comes back and he does actually answer the question. I, it took me a second to get that he was answering the question. But mm-hmm. basically his answer is he is going to he, he would say to swing state and, and, and pro-choice voters that he's going to uh, talk about the extremism of the Democrats abortion, abortion position. And I like that. I want to mm-hmm. see them do that. So Mm -hmm. far, I think, Grace, you probably will agree. We've seen Republicans go this direction, but we haven't seen a ton of them connect with voters. Possibly DeSantis is the exception because when he won in 2022, his reelection, he was uh, he was it was a huge outlier in that he did way better uh, than expected, uh, including in um, heavily uh, blue areas. And of course, he's not shy of mentioning this like Miami-Dade County, Mm -hmm. which he won as a Republican. So DeSantis ran as a strong pro-life candidate, and he won, including in swing districts. And uh, and he won partly by pivoting to target the Democratic message on abortion, which this isn't their message. They don't talk about this all the time. But the effect of their policies is abortion throughout pregnancy for any reason. And, you know, the numbers will tell you, any poll you look at will tell you that a majority of Americans are deeply uncomfortable with that, right? Um, And that's putting it mildly. Many Americans want abortion to be completely illegal, and many more Americans want it to be uh, illegal, um, after the first trimester, and only a tiny fraction of Americans want it to be legal up until the moment of birth. That is an extreme position, and people should call it out, as DeSantis does here. Now, I think the question, Grace, that we'll, and we'll have to see how this plays out, is whether that message will connect with swing voters. Because I think there's a perception that pro-life candidates are, uh, are the extremists. I, I don't know why there is that perception, frankly, but there is that perception. And it's partly the fallout from Dobbs, which changed the, the makeup of our abortion laws in this country. Dobbs is a great thing, don't get me wrong. But now, as we've discussed before, we're in this new environment on this issue. So uh, that, is, uh, that, is, that is, I think, an open question. But I think DeSantis is absolutely right that pivoting to talking about the extremism of the op- opposition party's policies on this is going to be um, a winning thing. What do you think, Grace?
0: Yeah, I think my opinion differs slightly with you here, Moses. I do agree that, you know, calling out abortion extremism in the Democratic Party is so right to do but i also think that he's right on to explain how being pro-life is a winning issue now of course that has yet to be seen in the upcoming election but just looking at historically uh at pro-life candidates when they tend to be more moderate and we saw that in minnesota with certain candidates uh candidates saying they were pro-life but they were more moderately pro-life and weren't pro-life up to the you know from the very moment of conception uh or sorry excuse me up to the very moment of birth um And conception, you know, they just they had different had different limits and different, you know, justifications for I'm pro-life. But in certain cases, you know, it's fine. I think that's when you actually see candidates lose, because I think a lot of evangelical conservatives want strong pro-life leaders who are going to take up the torch and are going to do everything it takes to win on life and so i think being boldly pro-life like desantis is a winning issue and i think desantis has proven that now he's proven it in florida which as we know wasn't always like the florida that we know today um and so that's really encouraging and so i think that he he really debunked the myth there in his short little clip that you need to win win as a Republican, you need to be more moderate on abortion. I think he debunked that, and I think that he's right. But, of course, we'll have to see how that plays out in the next election. So I also did appreciate his calling out Trump for comments that we discussed last week. I thought that was excellent, especially because of the debate and just also because those comments were not right. Um, One other thing to note about DeSantis is he also has, you know, that record to back his claims on almost everything, not just on life. I like that he – says something and then he's like, and look what I did here in Florida to back what I'm saying. That's really cool to see. Um, One other thing I want to note just on abortion in general from this debate is Chris Christie was the other candidate to talk about abortion. And, you know, this isn't necessarily the candidate's fault for not being able to talk about it. It's more so the moderators not giving this much airtime, you know, five minutes on the most important topic. So Christie argued uh, that Stronger pro-life leaders can advance a winning message in elections, which, again, good. He promoted his previous record that he's the only candidate who governed a majority Democrat state. And then he also discussed his history of funding Planned Parenthood 14 times during his time as governor. And so, again, he's leaning on his expertise, his experience, uh, which is good. So he's pro-life and he has a pro-life record but something I don't appreciate is that he says that he believes that the issue should be decided at a state level which again I'm for a you know national ban of course um and so and of course MFC is but you know any any win we would take, of course, because any win would save lives. So um, that's just interesting to note. He said that as president, he would lead a more unified approach um, to pro life and pro. Or, sorry, excuse me, pro life and post birth care. So I'd be interested to see more of how he outlines that in future debates. Moses, do you have thoughts on uh, Christie's comments here?
1: Yeah, I think Christie is your classic example of a moderate you know, uh, someone who's moderate on abortion, mm-hmm. as you were saying. And so, you know, in the unlikely event that Republican primary voters go for Chris Christie, then that is what you would have as president. You know, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd maybe see some defunding of Planned Parenthood. But would we see uh, true progress uh, towards, um, towards life at the federal level? I'm not sure. And, and that's, that's kind of sad. And, and as you said, the other candidates did not discuss this tonight, or last night. So we'll really have to wait and see where some of these candidates, you know, because yeah, mm-hmm. they've they've addressed this issue, of course they have on the campaign trail. But it's always interesting in politics to watch how messages evolve over time, mm-hmm. uh, either becoming better or worse or more focused or less focused. So we will keep keep you guys updated on where candidates stand as we gear up for Uh, Early next year, when we will start voting for some of these candidates uh, in our caucuses and then in the Republican primary, if you are a Republican primary voter. And finally, um, one of these candidates, uh, possibly um, from that debate stage last night or possibly Donald Trump, will be up against presumably Joe Biden or possibly someone else coming up next fall. So. We'll keep you updated between now and then. Um, So that's our top stories for this week. Thanks so much for watching and listening. And now before we go, I'd like to ask Grace, what are you reading this week?
0: Yeah, great question. I'm glad we're back to it because last week we took a little bit of a break. But I'm pulling up my Goodreads right now. You know that Moses and I love Goodreads i mentioned last time or the last time we discussed books that i was reading through some george mcdonald so uh i read the princess and the goblin by george mcdonald for the first time which was so good and it is a piece of children's lit that is so excellent and again mcdonald is a huge inspiration for c.s lewis and i love lewis so it's no surprise that i really enjoyed it um But what I appreciated about this, among other things, was just the emphasis throughout the story about, like, trust, um, trust in God. Not that God was in the story, but that was very clearly a theme, Um, you know, trust in God's sovereignty. And so that was really cool to see. So I think it's a good piece of children's lit because of that. And in all in all, it was just so well written and um, really enjoyed that. And then I also read The Golden Key, which is another children's story by him which for me I think went a little bit over my head was kind of hard to grasp all of what was going on there so I think I need to reread it and kind of just think about what's really going on there because it was just I know it was really deep I just didn't fully understand the depth if you know what I mean so yes Mm -hmm. read both of those books uh hear Moses laughing and then I'm also rereading the Anne of Green Gables series so lots of fiction from me Moses what are you reading?
1: Well, same old same old. I'm continuing to read The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot, which I think I mentioned 2 weeks ago. I'm I'm close to being done. Um it's it's excellent. I mean, it's the sort of book where I was stuck in traffic yesterday and I'm like, "Oh good, more time with my audiobook." Mm-hmm. So, I'm really enjoying it. I'm just a sucker for big Victorian novels and I just don't think that's ever going to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and then I'll tell you what I'm going to read next though. Um, I got a notification yesterday that there was a new book available for my Kindle and lo and behold there's a new murder mystery from uh, J.K. Rowling I knew writing you were gonna as – <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, Writing as Robert Galbraith. Mm -hmm. So it's called The Running Grave. I'm really excited about that. Um, My only question is, am I going to buy it or am I going to wait till it's on sale? (laughs) Great Um, question. I know we've talked about that series. I know that you um, are not as huge of a fan of them as me, but I think we can both agree they're super addictive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing with our audience what you're reading. I want to close out this podcast episode just with Uh, a verse. So right now there are several people in both Moses's life and my life who are struggling with very severe cancer, stage four and their moms. And, um, that's just heartbreaking. And so I've read this, um, passage this week and it really made me think of them because they're solid Christians. Um, just have a beautiful testimony and are suffering so beautifully for Christ. And so I just want to read you this. Um, it is from, First Corinthians, I believe. First Corinthians 1. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, th- so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are, um, it is, For your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we will know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And I think that's a beautiful passage, um, especially in relation to what I was just talking about, that when we suffer as the body of Christ, we suffer partially for the reason that we can then comfort, um, comfort others. And also we can understand other suffering, but also so that we make, you know, the cross of Christ more real to others. And we're sharing in Christ's sufferings. And not only when we suffer, do we just suffer, but we also share in the comfort of Christ, which is so beautiful. And um, I love the reminder that we have ultimate hope that Christ will deliver us. And, you know, Amen. Hope does not put us to vain. Or yeah, hope yeah, hope will never forsake us. So, love that reminder. Um thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Family Beacon podcast. We have new episodes every single Friday and if you are listening right now on whatever platform make sure you check us out on YouTube because we actually have this videoed and our videographer does an amazing job. So make sure you check it out and turn on post notifications. Also, please leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Um, That really helps us get up there in the ratings and helps more people find our content. So we will see you next week and we will help you always get the facts and stand for truth. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're up to date on life, family, and religious freedom. You can follow us on Instagram at MNFamilyCouncil and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch our content. Get the facts. Stand for truth.